It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I was arrested by the Marlin Commission investigators, and I was taken into a conference room. I was told I was being charged with conspiracy to distribute narcotics and civil rights violations. I was confronted with a lot of things that I had committed. I was told that I had an opportunity to help myself. This is testimony of 30th Precinct Officer George Nova, taken from court documents. He's describing the events surrounding September 23rd, 1993, the day of his arrest. So I called the desk officer at the 30th precinct and I told him I was having car trouble and I wasn't gonna be able to make it in. After I made the phone call, I sat in the room and I was given a lot of facts that I knew were true that I had committed and who I had committed them with. And I knew I was caught. I decided I was going to cooperate with the U.S. government and the Marlin Commission. It was already some time into the afternoon, and once we got through the debriefing, there wasn't much time because they wanted me to attend a precinct barbecue that was going on where my partner, Officer Arena, was going to be at, and other officers that were part of the investigation were going to be at, and they wanted me to wear a wire to the barbecue. It was scheduled to be under the George Washington Bridge. After 5 p.m., I met the Marlin Commission investigator, Frank O'Hara, and he got into my car and he explained what the recording device was. He showed it to me. He told me where to wear it. And he gave me a few instructions on what he wanted me to do at the barbecue. Okay, George, you're going to wear a wire and it's going to weigh like... 100 pounds as far as you're concerned. And you're going to think everybody can see it. Everybody can see it. But trust me, in a very short time, you'll become comfortable. You'll realize that it doesn't stick out. You'll realize that everybody doesn't know you're wired. You'll get comfortable with the situation. When you're in a group, when you're talking to people, do not go up to somebody and say, hey, Do you remember two weeks ago on Thursday night at about 8 o'clock, we went into that apartment on 135th Street and we ripped the drug dealer off? Do you remember that? Please, don't ever, ever do that. Don't change your pattern of conversation. Keep it the same. Don't become a different George Nova. He told me, just go to the barbecue and just be normal and not to look to start any conversations with anyone, just to basically hang around and try to listen to what was going on, but not try to solicit any information from anyone. People will talk to you. If they bring something up, very gingerly try and expand on it. Like if they come over to you and say, hey, I heard uh, so-and-so made a score last night, or really, I didn't hear that. What happened? and then just become a good listener. 
You don't have to be a good talker. Become a good listener. When somebody brings something up to you, oh, really? What happened? Just ask a very basic, easy question and stand there and listen. If somebody says, hey, are you wired? Get a little aggressive. Open up your shirt and say, do you see anything? And then pull down your zipper and say, here, start there. And by the way, drop your freaking pants because I'm going to search you. You got to come on a little strong and they usually back off. And try not to move too much because the clothing up against the mic makes noise. He just looked at me in the eyes like this and said, got him. We both knew that this would be the turning point. Because if you flip this guy, then he's going to tell you about his partners and you're going to just see how far, how extensive this ring of corruption exists. We're partners and you don't lie to your partners. The DA's office expected the modeling commission to bring the case to them and were furious that they brought the case to us. That is not the way this is supposed to work. It's duplicitous. That was it for us. I'm Zach Levin, and this is The Set. Episode 7, Off to the Races. I parked my car for the barbecue, and I got out, and I walked in the direction of the guys that I mostly got along with, which was Officer Josh Rivera and others I knew together. As I greeted the first officers, they said hello to me, shook my hand, and pulled me towards them and started hugging me. A few of them were making comments that I was getting a little bit heavy, and I was developing a little bit of a stomach, and they patted me around the stomach area. And everybody was patting each other down as they were saying hello to each other. They were searching to see if I was wearing a wire. Just one month earlier, an article appeared in the New York Times titled Shakedowns Are Suspected in Two Precincts. The piece had leaked that the 3-0 was one of the two precincts of focus for corruption investigations, which includes officers being on the payroll of drug dealers. Joe Walsh, one of Nannery's raiders, was also at the barbecue that day under the George Washington Bridge. Josh Rivera wanted to talk to me on the street. He puts the volume all the way up in the car. And he whispers like right in my ear. And he says, people think you're a rat, you're wearing a wire. I go, like, toss me, I got nothing. He's like, Joe, everybody thinks you're wearing a wire. I'm like, I swear, I'm not wearing a wire. I didn't get collared, nothing. It was paranoia. I mean, everybody was, you know, up in arms. Nova doesn't see his partner, John Arena, at the barbecue. So he leaves. But later that night, they run into each other at a dance club. I walked over to where he was standing and I said hello to him. We started talking and I asked him why he wasn't at the barbecue. He told me he was at the barbecue, but that a lot of people were like frisking each other, searching each other, and he didn't know what was going on. It was an uncomfortable feeling there, 
and he told me that he wore a wire detector to the barbecue. And he didn't pick up on anybody. Meaning he didn't get a signal that anybody was wearing a recording device. At the time, there was a lot of rumors in the 30th Precinct about investigations going on by Internal Affairs and the Marlin Commission into police corruption. He asked me if I would ever wear a wire if I was arrested, and I told him I wouldn't. He then told me, well, I just got one thing to tell you if you ever decide to do it. You better let me know, because if not, I'll kill your family and I'll kill you. After he said that, I felt uncomfortable with the whole conversation. And I knew he was drinking and I didn't like the way he was acting. So I kind of just walked away from him. I told him, let's forget what we were talking about. He went off with a couple of my friends and I went home. Just a few days later, Nova hosts a family gathering. He tells Frank O'Hara and the hand-picked internal affairs investigators now on the team that he's invited Arena to his house for the party. So they place a microphone inside an eyeglass case in the center console of Nova's car. When Arena shows up to the party, Nova asks him to take a ride to the store. The conversation is recorded. Arena begins by making an attempt at an apology for threatening Nova. You know, I want... I know I was fucking drunk. Let me just tell you something I would have told you that night. I could see if they caught you and they turned you. But if they caught me and they turned me, I'd even tell you, yo, George, you know, even if I wrote it down on a piece of paper, I'm wearing a wire. Anybody fucking else. I wouldn't give two shits because they don't mean nothing to me. I didn't do shit with them, you know? And they didn't do shit with me. And I know they do the same fucking thing to me. Everybody's looking out for themselves, you know? If they picked you up, they might not give you the option. To wear wire, you mean? No, to implicate your partner. You know what I'm saying? It don't matter if they gave you the option or not. I'll just say my partner's got nothing to do with it. He don't know what's going on, you know? Nova mentions a drug dealer that they both know. He tells Arena that he's nervous because he hasn't heard from the dealer. Maybe he's been busted. So what were you saying about him? He's acting funny now? I'm saying, you know, I haven't spoken to him, you know, like, he hasn't called or nothing. Usually calls to find out how everything was and stuff, so it's funny, you know, so. If he's cooperating, it's just him saying we gave him the drugs. It's just him saying we got $16,000. It's just him saying that on several occasions, they took the drugs, gave it to him, and he gave them the money. It's only his word. You're there for 15, 16 hours listening, recording. And you might only get three minutes out of 16 hours that are really going to help your criminal case. It's a little piece, a little piece, a little piece. And after a while, you start building that bridge and pieces start to come together. But it's a process. You can't rush the process. If you do, the cake is not going to bake. But the process might stop dead in its tracks if O'Hara doesn't clear one obstacle out of the way. 
Rena's wire detector. It can blow up the whole investigation. O'Hara tells Nova to reach out to Arena to say that he's also nervous about cops in the 3-0 wearing a wire and ask him if he can borrow his detector. Nova said Arena had threatened to kill him if he flipped, but he goes over to his apartment anyway with a transmitter attached to the small of his back and the wire weaved around his waist and through his belt buckle. When I got there, I sat down and I had a conversation with him. And after a while, he went and retrieved the wire detector and brought it out. Then he took out this black box with some lights and some switches on the front. And he connected the end of the wire into the box. He explained that this device was very sensitive. And it picked up not only recording devices, but it could also pick up on the television, a radio, lights, and other things, and set it off, including a beeper can set it off. And he turned the stereo on, and he walked over there, and he reached up with the mic end of it, and he was holding the black box in his hand, and he was saying, see, I'm getting vibrations as I put it up to the radio. But then he said, if you put it next to a recording device, you'll definitely get a really strong vibration. It's a different vibration. You'll know. At which point he walked over to me. And he told me he was going to show me basically how to do it on somebody if he was talking to them. And he searched me with the end piece. He took the piece in his hand and he went across my shoulders, down my arms, and down my torso into my waistband area. Once he got to my waistband area, he paused and his facial expression started changing. I was getting nervous. He told me that he was getting a strong vibration from me. And then he asked me, are you wired? And I said, yeah, I'm wired. And I took the beeper that I had on my belt and I said, here it is. This is the wire right here. And he put it up to the beeper and then he said, oh, okay. Then he showed me instructions on how to use this wire detector. He folded it, put it in the box, and he closed the box and he gave it to me. Somebody once told me, an old-time detective lieutenant, kid, you crawl, you walk, and then you run. And same with an investigation. You crawl, you walk, you run. We were in the walk stage, and we started walking a little faster. Shimoliai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because 
I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm here to tell you that we got fucked by the Mullen Commission. And as a result, we will never, ever, ever work with them again. When we last heard from the Manhattan DA's office in Episode 5, Dan Castleman, second in charge behind the boss, Robert Morgenthau, said they'd felt betrayed by the Mullen Commission He said that Joe Armeo and Judge Mullen had promised to take any corruption case they developed to his office. When he found out that instead, they'd taken the George Nova case to the feds in the Southern District, he cut all ties with them. You want to work with these duplicitous fucks? That's up to you. We choose not to. We'll go and do our own thing. When Castleman said, we'll go and do our own thing, He meant that the DA's office would pursue its own police corruption case in the 3-0, without including the Mullen Commission or the feds. They know that George Nova isn't the only corrupt cop in the precinct. The DA's head of the public corruption unit is Bill Burmeister. He reports to Dan Castleman. But Burmeister doesn't concern himself with turf wars. He wants to build a case in the 3-0 because he knows the dirty cops are leaving the neighborhood to fend for itself. That is the most critical part of this story. These guys weren't policing. They were looking to put money in their pockets. They were there for themselves. They were not protecting anybody. And that's what it's all about. During this time, Bill Burmeister receives one of the strangest tips of his career. I became aware of an allegation in an arrest in a special narcotics case. It was a 30th precinct case in which the defense attorney had gone to the special narcotics prosecutor and told her that his client, who had been arrested and charged with possession of two kilos, actually had three kilos. And that the cops had stolen the third kilo. It's almost like a defense attorney coming in and said, yeah, my guy killed the guy, but he didn't shoot him, he stabbed him. That was unusual. That's something that's never happened before. The drug dealer claims that an officer named Alberto Vargas, one of the midnight guys in the 30th precinct, was the cop who stole his third kilo. And then he sold it to another drug dealer for $26,000. 
But Burmeister can't just go out and arrest Vargas based simply on the allegation of an admitted drug dealer. So he decides to try to recreate the exact same scenario that led Officer Vargas to steal the kilo. It's a sting operation. We knew there was a car involved, and my investigators and I went out to the impound lot where the car was and looked at it. We knew at the time that drug dealers moving narcotics in the city wouldn't put it you know, in the back seat or they wouldn't put it in the trunk, but they were building traps within the internal compartments of the car and they could be activated by a switch. So we got a car with out-of-state plates. The car was wired with pinhole cameras and recording devices. We had a male acting as an undercover. He was Hispanic. And he drove a car around in the 30th precinct in the midnight shift. The car has a trap that's built into the back of the glove box. And it's filled with a bag of money. As soon as the car begins driving through the 30th precinct with its out-of-state plates, it gets pulled over. But not by Alberto Vargas. It's a different midnight guy in the 3-0, named George Alvarez. The driver was taken out of the car and brought to the rear, and George Alvarez can be heard saying to his partner, he's nervous as shit, man. You then see Alvarez getting into the car and rifling through the console, the glove box, and he finds a brown paper bag that has cash in it. And he pulls the cash out of the bag and he starts stuffing it down the front of his pants. They then let the driver go and we had a recording of him stealing money. It's all caught on video. Even the bundle of cash that falls out of Alvarez's pant leg while he's sitting in the front seat, which he picks back up and stuffs into his sock. Shortly after, Alvarez gets arrested and brought in to be questioned by Bill Burmeister. We confronted him with the fact that we had him on tape stealing money. He wanted to see the tapes. So we showed him, and um, he agreed to cooperate with us. Alvarez also agrees to wear a wire. And now the DA's office has a cooperator of its own inside the 3-0, just like George Nova. There are now two separate cases being built inside the 30th precinct, with two officers who've committed corrupt acts together. But neither of them know about the other. Here's Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Horowitz. Bill Burmeister, of course, gave me the courtesy of letting me know when they had arrested and flipped Alvarez. And so, to some extent, you've got George Nova versus Officer Alvarez. You know, the gun's gone off, the gates have opened, and now we're off to the races. The two sides, the DA's office and the Mullen Commission with the Southern District, are now competing with each other to see who can build the bigger case we felt pretty confident where we were heading. What we were most worried about, frankly, was not having Alvarez do something that would blow our case. Frank O'Hara and Michael Horowitz are looking to move things forward. 
to flip their next cop and get deeper into the corruption inside the 3-0. Their next target is crucial to keep the investigation going. O'Hara speaks with George Nova and tells him what they're looking for. Talking to George, we didn't want any nightclub guy to be out all night drinking and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. We didn't want a hothead. We wanted somebody that was like a steady Eddie, quiet guy, not a boisterous guy, not a bad guy, not a violent guy, just like a steady Eddie, kind of like a big brother to some of these guys. O'Hara's told the name of one of the midnight guys. Al Vargas. Alberto Vargas. He's the cop who'd stolen the third kilo from the drug dealer that had complained about it to the DA's office. But this isn't the first time that Franco Harris heard the name Alberto Vargas. I told him what I knew about Vargas, that he had a custom Corvette made for him with his name from Chevrolet. Back when O'Hara had met with Barry Brown at the Holiday Inn in Fort Lee, New Jersey, Brown told him about Alberto Vargas and his custom Corvette. O'Hara discusses Vargas with Michael Horowitz, who then brings in investigators from the IRS. Through our work with the IRS, they'd identified a cash payout that he made for a car, which for someone making probably at the time less than $20,000 a year, seemed like a lot of money for a fancy car. How'd you do it? You know, you save your quarters all your life, your communion money or what? Before they arrest Vargas, they need to figure out if he's going to cooperate. Like Nova, if Vargas doesn't flip, the investigation is over. It can't be secret anymore. So Horowitz does a little research. He learns that Vargas has a very close-knit family, and he lives at home with his mother and father. Which means that his parents might talk some sense into him. If you went home and talked to his parents about it, they would say, you can't go to jail for the rest of your life. Do the right thing, put it behind you. So the team arrests Vargas on December 16, 1993, and they bring him up to the SDNY satellite office in White Plains. We had even more evidence on him than we had had on Nova. Loads of tapes, I mean, with loads of tapes from George Nova and other evidence, including the IRS evidence. So I could tell him what car he bought, when he bought it, how much he paid for it, show we went up bluffing. And we went the whole day with him being undecided on whether he would cooperate. Back and forth the whole day. During virtually the same time that Alberto Vargas is sitting in the SDNY office, weighing the biggest decision of his life. Back in West Harlem, an officer in the 3-0 named Alfonso Comprez is waiting for a drug dealer inside a building on 141st Street. He learned that a person was going to be going into an apartment building carrying a kilo of cocaine. Somebody tipped him off. He laid in wait in the lobby. The person came in carrying the cocaine. Compress approached him, grabbed him. The guy fought back. The guy dropped the cocaine. The guy ran up the stairs and Compress shot at him. 
and hit him, wounding him. The guy took off, hit the roof, and was gone. Comprez was known on the streets as Abusador, which in English means abuser, calls in a 1013, officer needs assistance. And the first cop to respond to the scene is George Nova. Nova sees blood on the floor and a spent shell casing, which Compras takes. Compras allegedly takes the package of Coke, too. Compras fit the profile of a Banana Republic police officer who abuses authority as much as you could abuse it. You can't come up with a more outrageous situation of a uniformed police officer trying to rip off a drug dealer who resists, and then he gets shot. I mean, you can't make that up. You know, they say truth is better than fiction. Well, that's one of the stories that's better than fiction. I mean, he could have easily have killed the drug dealer by shooting at him. How out of control could it be? December 16th has been a wild day for the investigation, and it's coming to a close. That morning, they'd arrested Alberto Vargas, the midnight officer with the custom Corvette. And up in the White Plains office of SDNY, he still hasn't made up his mind if he's going to cooperate with the feds. Michael Horowitz. At a certain point in time, as we told him, we had to bring him across the street to place him in front of a judge before the courthouse closed for the day. At 4.30 or so, he said he wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to cooperate. Sitting in the room is NYPD Lieutenant Dominic Zarella. Zarella's an investigator with internal affairs. He's one of the NYPD guys handpicked by the Mullen Commission to work on this case. Zarella walks over to Vargas. We said, all right, let's go. And he got up. I was putting the cuffs on him, and I just said to him, listen, you better help none of this money that you've stolen or gotten from drugs ties back to the house that your mom or dad live in because that's all going to be on the table. And he just said, all right, all right, take the cuffs off. And he changed his mind. And he said, no, I want to cooperate. Vargas is older than Nova, been in the precinct longer, and has relationships with some officers that Horowitz and O'Hara haven't heard anything about. This was getting into the officers who were white, who didn't necessarily hang out with the Hispanic officers like George Nova. But Al Vargas was able to, because he was so well-liked, was working with all of the groups of officers. Al could talk to people. People talked to Al. They went to him for advice. He expanded the universe in the precinct. He was able to take us places where Nova couldn't take us. He took us into 
people that Nova didn't deal with, that Nova couldn't talk to. Every time you come down, you know how they used to run in? Uh-huh. How do you run out? <laughs> Just like Nova, Al Vargas starts wearing a wire every day that he works in the 3-0. This is actual audio of Alberto Vargas wearing his wire. This conversation has never been heard by the public. It's New Year's Eve, 1993, and Vargas is patrolling West Harlem with another midnight guy, Officer Mike Walsh. No relation to Nannery's raider, Joe Walsh. Vargas is relaxed, and Mike Walsh has no idea his friend is wired. Walsh has already told Vargas about his old partner, Blake Stroller, and the score they made together when they stole a duffel bag filled with $150,000 in cash. Here, Walsh tells Vargas about the time Stroller perjured himself in a jury trial. Walsh says that when the judge asked if anybody had anything else to say, the defense attorney screamed at Stroller for lying on the stand. Mike Walsh was there watching the trial. He says that after, when he and Stroller got on the elevator, a young female juror got on with them as well, crying, and told Blake Stroller, I hope you're telling the truth. If Blake gets on the elevator, one of the jurors gets on with her, a female, and she's bawling her eyes out. Yeah. I hope you're telling the truth. <laughs> you just sit there and you're like, what? It's just fucking crying. You could have told the truth, they could have been in jail. Fucking asshole. Blake's like, look, the guy's guilty. <laughs> Mike Walsh is laughing as he tells the story because he says that the lie Stroller made up was preposterous. He says if you go in there and you tell the truth, they don't believe you. You know something? If you went in there and you tell the truth, they don't believe you. Oh, they still don't believe you, yeah. If you go in there and give them a concocted story, they believe you. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened. Oh, yeah, I can't believe that. Here, Mike Walsh and Alberto Vargas talk about the rumors in the precinct of other guys being investigated for corruption. Walsh mentions an officer who picked up $5,000 off the floor in a pool hall and then had an allegation filed against him. And next thing you know, $5,000 went on the floor. And next thing you know, an allegation. Vargas says it's a bad time to get an allegation. It's a bad time to get one. Walsh says everything you do here is bad timing. Everything you do here is bad timing. Uh, if they concentrated on these fucking drug dealers more than they concentrated on us, Maybe they could get something accomplished. Walsh says there's so much talk, so many rumors. It's all bullshit. Hopefully, I mean, you know, it happened before. Well, tons of fucking rumors. Walsh tells Vargas that he doesn't think the rumors will blow over this time. That something is going to happen. Something's going to be that easy this time. Something's going to happen. 
Mike Walsh then asked Vargas about George Alvarez, how long he's been a cop. How much time is George Alvarez on the job? George? 12, maybe? All three guys, Walsh, Vargas, and Alvarez, work the midnights together. And Walsh has used Alvarez as his connect to sell stolen coke for him. He's likely considering this fact when he says about Alvarez, I just hope he doesn't get fucking jammed up, meaning arrested. I hope not. Walsh says if he does, I'm fucked. Huh? He does, I'm fucked. Neither of them know that George Alvarez has already been flipped by the DA's office and is also wearing a wire. Vargas does his best not to betray himself, to show Mike Walsh that he too has the same concerns. I mean, as long as these fucking guys lay low, you know, hopefully everything will fucking blow over. I just hope everything blows the fuck over, you know? I'm just saying, just another five years I want to make to get the fuck out of here. That's it, that's it. I'll find something else to do. It's a fucked up world and a fucked up department. Alberto Vargas doesn't let on to Mike Walsh that the Mollen Commission is listening to every word of their conversation or that they've targeted Walsh as one of their next dominoes to fall. The guys finish their tour for the night. They enter the station house and head to the locker room. Take it easy, Mike. Happy New Year. You too. Don't work too hard. It's New Year's Day, 1994. The beginning of the wildest year in the history of the 3-0. On the next episode of The Set. I was very cognizant that uh, I was inheriting a mess. A new NYPD commissioner is appointed, and he finds out what he's up against. The desire on my part was how do I use this crisis as an opportunity to assert that there's a, there's a new sheriff in town and that uh, this sheriff is not to be trifled with. And things come to a head inside the 30th precinct. I remember hearing a shot and I'm thinking, he's in the precinct. Why would there be any shots in the precinct? It's time to shut this down. Time to shut it down before somebody kills somebody. The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales, and operations by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Kudrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese-Dennis, Tim Clark, Craig Cox, 
Kellum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.